All right, well, welcome to Spurbs Herbs, episode 12. Today we have an exciting herb, Melaleuca kajapudi, a uh, uh, common name often known as paper bark. We're going to see lots of other names for it as well. Um, paper bark. This is our actual first Aboriginal herb that we are talking about on Spurbs Herbs. And uh, if you if you know anything about me, uh, which most of you probably don't, I spent four years in medical school down in Australia, and I spent six months in the uh, working with the Aboriginal community. So I have some um, interesting insights into this, and it should be a lot of fun. So let's get into episode twelve: Melaleuca kajapudi paper bark. It's not easy to say quickly. Uh, and. For our podcasters, if you are an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as others, are approved for cabin CEUs and NCCOM PDAs at a reasonable cost. You just need to go to integrativemedicinecouncil.org, and you can find that out as well. I also have a new book coming out called Dragons in the Medicine Cabinet, Chinese Herbal Medicines Everyone Should Have at Home. If you're interested in getting information, please send me an email at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com. All right, let's get into it. So, uh, let's, you know, I always find it fascinating when we talk about herbs, it's, I think it's really important to talk about the culture that the herbs come from, because that, that spins a lot of what's going on. Uh, and, and, and today we're going to be talking about the Aboriginal culture, uh, and specifically uh, because there are Aborigines in, in many, cult, you know, many parts of the world, we're talking about Australian Aborigines or Aboriginal culture. And I, I want to say, you know, even though I just said I have been a, a um, I, I was down there for four years, and I was actually part of a, a special program that our medical school had. Uh, we were only the second cohort. I think there was only three in our cohort. There was one in the first cohort, and it was called the Out of Alice program. And it, it put you in Alice Springs for six months working with, with uh, Aborigines in, in Central Australia. And uh, I, for that six months, was, it was amazing. I was able to uh, be part of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'd fly in and out of, of Aboriginal uh, communities. Uh, I spent uh, quite a while with the psychology and social work team. So we'd go out to communities for several days at a time and uh, deal with their psychological and social worker needs. Um, so that was fascinating. I was in a community clinic in Alice Springs that was specifically geared towards uh, working with Aboriginals, and so it was, a, it was a lot of fun. And then I actually spent six weeks in uh, living in an Aboriginal uh, community and working out of their community uh, healthcare center. So it was, it was a lot of fun, and I learned a ton. And while going through all that, we went through some. I went through something called the uh, Aboriginal Cultural Awareness Program, or ACAP, and so I learned a lot about the culture. But having said all that, I do want to start off by saying this. I am no expert on the Aboriginal people of Australia. Um, I've done a lot of reading and study and, and live with them, but I not for any length of time that I would consider myself an expert, though I do have some very interesting insights as we get into this. And so, you know, the first thing I, I you know, I want to just say we often, especially in the United States, we, we talk about the Aborigines as sort of a monolithic culture. And it's not true. Australia is actually the size of mainland America. If you take out Hawaii and you take out Alaska, which is huge, um, Australia is the same size as America. It doesn't look like that on a map because it's kind of small down there on a, on a globe or something, but it's, it's a very large country, just like America. 
And just like America, there's many different climates. There's a ton of different peoples, cultures, traditions, and actually languages. You know, when we talk about the Aborigines, I, I was told there were somewhere in the neighborhood of like 3,000 languages. And each one of those is cultures, very, very tribal um, and very, um, uh, you know, community oriented. And while there was a lot of trade and a lot of communication between these different communities, uh, they were all very distinct with their own cultures, their own languages. And so to say Aboriginal is, is a very inaccurate thing to say. In fact, the herb that we're talking about today, the, the Melaleuca Kachapudi, is, is actually uh, Northern Territory. So it's up in the North. And actually there's a, there's a cousin of Melaleuca uh, Kachapudi, I think, in Central Australia, but probably has nothing to do with Central Australian Aborigines at all. Uh, so there's that sort of thing. Found it fascinating with the languages. They are very distinct. Um, I think they're family of languages. So, you know, kind of like Latinate languages. So, you know, there's some some overlap between languages, but not that much. Uh, and, and my understanding is that within a, a community, most people will speak two or three or four different languages, uh, different languages than, than other people in that community. So there's a lot, so they're able to actually communicate with with uh, other Aborigine uh, peoples as well. So it's really interesting. But I, I wanna make this important. It's difficult to talk about the Aboriginal people or their traditions because they are so diverse. And, and you know, if you're up in the North, you're living in a tropical clime. It's equatorial, um, hot, rainy, wet, um, very different clime than it is in uh, the rest of Australia, really. There's the coastal Australia, and then there's the interior Australia, and except for the coastal and the north, everything else is pretty much a desert. So very, very different, and different deserts, you know, within the, that community. So let's get into this a little bit more. So one of the first things I like to do personally when learning about a new culture is to understand their basic philosophy and or religion. To me, that helps me understand their worldview. And it was actually one of the it was difficult because I'd asked these questions and I never got a really great answer to them. Uh, it took a lot of time for me to kind of digest what this was for, for most of the Aboriginal communities. And so really what it comes down to with the Aborigines is something called dream time. They have a lot of differences. They have different origin stories, but they all do seem to have the dream time in common. So dream time is a quote unquote time before current history where ancestral beings, usually half human, half animal, wandered over the country, creating all the features on the landscape and setting up the law. So, I, you know, this right there gives us a few things so like we, we were we drive through the country and I was very lucky. We, we actually had a nunkery as a, as a guide. A nunkery is sort of um, I'm trying to figure out is, is sort of the the um, medicine man of a central Australian um, uh, Aboriginal community so uh, he was very well versed in, in medicine and and he had been um, I, I believe he was part of the stolen generation if you're not familiar with the stolen generation that's just one of the tragedies that have befallen the Aborigines but um, for several decades the Aboriginal government were stealing the children and putting them with with uh, um, European Australians and having them go to school 
and um, separating them from their parents and all that. And their idea was that this is helping them, this will help them uh, integrate and all that. And of course, it was a, a huge tragedy. Uh, and uh, so uh, this this nunkery uh, that we were working with uh, had had grown up in in uh, you know Western schools and and uh, understand our culture very well. But also as a nunkery, he completely was immersed and understood the, the culture of the Aborigines. And so it was fascinating. He was touring us. And it would be fascinating. We'd be driving along and there'd be a mountain range and he'd sit there and go, okay, that's this, you know, and he'd come up with some name and it's one of these ancestral beings. And he would talk about how they stomped around and you see all the, the pools around the, the base of it. That was their footprints. And then they laid down and died and that became the mountains. And so that's sort of this dream time. That's the, the ancestors. And there's stories, there's, there's myths, you know, along the lines of like the um, Greek gods and and some fights and some all that kind of stuff would come in. But that was dream time, and it's it, and I do think it kind of lays down how important in what is important in this culture is talking about this. So the land and the 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 way the land is shaped and made and the animals are incredibly important. And it comes from this dream time thing. The other thing that's really important is the law. Uh, and they have some, some really interesting laws that they follow. Uh, and it, and it's, it's fascinating. And, and, and um, they have some, they have definite um, punishments for law. One of the ones that I know, I think if someone is uh, convicted of stealing in their community, uh, the the law says that you throw a spear through their their calf muscle. That's the the uh, punishment for doing that. So very you know relatively severe, but sort of sacred laws. The other one that that was fascinating to me is their sacred men's business and their sacred women's business. And a man is not to know anything about sacred women's business. I was working in the community in the Aboriginal community uh, in a clinic. And every time a pap smear or anything to do with pregnancy or menses or anything, I had to leave the room. It was against the law for me to be in that room. Same token, if a woman shows up at a men's ceremony, and there are lots of interesting men's ceremony, I have some stories about that, I have some very weird stories about that. Um, but if a woman were to, to go to a, a man's ceremony, the, the penalty was death. Um, so really strong laws, uh, and they and they follow them. Uh, it, it's it's fascinating as you get into all this stuff. So uh, this dream time sets up a lot of what is important. The land it features the importance of harmony and caring for the land, and the laws to support these. And we're going to have a story in just a second, and just the way they are in harmony with the the the, the land and the world and the environment around them is just amazing and I think it contributes to our understanding of herbs within the Aboriginal communities. So it's important for us to kind of get this established a little bit. I mean, that's really brief overview of Dreamtime. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm still, you know, I've read a lot and, on this and, and I'm still not entirely sure about it, but I think I have a handle on it. So that's Dreamtime. So, from this Dreamtime, we have the landscape as it is, and it is a harsh environment. Australia has more desert than any other continent in the world. 90% uh, of Australia's population lives within 10 to 20 miles of the coast. So very few people are living on the, on the inside of Australia. 
Um, the other one that I love to, to talk about here is I think it's six out of the ten's most ten, six of the ten most the world's most deadliest spiders live on Australia, and I think it's seven of the ten most deadliest uh, snakes live in Australia. And I swear I saw them all, uh, most of them out in outside. I mean, I saw them all definitely in herpetoriums and zoos and stuff, but um, I saw quite a few of them out live. There was a nice little brown snake in our pharmacy one morning. Uh, which is like, I think it's ranked number two or three in the world as far as deadliest snakes. So, um, and by the way, as soon as they said brown snake in the pharmacy, I was out of the clinic. I am not into snakes. I was gone. Um, but it is a very harsh environment and to live there. And, and remember there's, there's very little water, uh, in Australia where I was living in Alice Springs, they, they didn't really, their, their rule for if you were a native to Alice Springs was if you saw the river flood three times uh, because it, it's a completely dry riverbed and then when there's lots of rains, it will rain and the water will flow for a, a period of time and then dry up again. And it usually takes years between that will happen. I, I happened to be there in a very wet time. I, th I saw it flow twice, so it was almost a native in the six months that I was there. But uh, so very little water and it comes and goes. Apparently, there's lots of water underground if you know how to get it and how to get it from the plants. There's water out there, and the Aborigines know all this. They're just amazing in that. So the Australian Aborigines have lived on this harsh land and has one of the longest standing cultures on the planet. There are estimates that it's over 40,000 years old, and I should say stand longest standing continuous cultures on the planet. There's, I don't think there's any other culture on the planet that is been as continuous as, as these Aboriginal cultures. So very, very old. Um, no written language particularly, though they do draw and, and stuff like that. And our, our Nunkery was awesome. He's like, you gotta stop, you gotta see this and you bring us to a cave and there'd be uh, drawings in the cave, which were fascinating, explained to us what it meant and all that. But 40,000 years old um, and everything is, is verbal. It's handed down in songs and, and wisdom and verbs and verbal uh, communication. Uh, though the, the one thing that's interesting about it, about the culture, is you're not supposed to ask questions. You're supposed to observe, and uh, rarely are you allowed to ask questions. And I, and I, uh, I ran into that. I'm not going to get into that, but maybe it's some other, uh, when I talk about another Australian herb. So the bottom line is they have a deep, deep connection with the land. Uh, one of the, the stories that I was told about this was uh, the Australian government came in and said, hey, Let's let's help these people out. Let's build them homes, and so they built a bunch of homes for the Aboriginal people. Didn't talk to the Aborigines. Didn't talk to the chiefs. Just did it, and then they were really upset. The government officials were really upset when they come back years later, and all the Aborigines are still living out on the land, sleeping out on the land, and the houses were just full of trash. And you know when they asked, well, why aren't you using the houses? And the Aborigines would just look at them and go why would we ever live in some place that prevented us from seeing the stars, you know, from being outdoors? It was just beyond them that they, that anyone would think that they would want something like that. So it was a, it's just fascinating cultural um, stuff. Um, and anyways, let's move on. So I, I have, I, I promised you a little story that I think kind of summarizes a lot of this going on. Uh, there's a wonderful, sobering, harsh, anger-inducing book about the histories, history of the Aborigines in the Northern Territory and their interactions with the Balanda, 
or non-aboriginals uh, called Why Warriors Lie Down and Die. Um, it's not, it's, it's a good read. It's, it, it, you know, it, it captures your attention, but it's not a fun read. I, and there's a passage, passage in there describing the author walking with the aborigines. So this is him talking. Well, not quite yet. After he arrived in Arnhem Land in 1973, the author was traveling by barge, uh, then 25 miles on land with a tractor pulling a trailer, which broke down. So he was going to a particular Aboriginal community. So the tractor um, broke down. He was he was interested. He was saying like, you know, everyone was like, okay, we walk from here on. It was like no big deal. The tractor broke down. Let's just walk. Um, so they began walking. And this is his story. As we filed out across the tidal plain, heading for the woodland ahead, I joined the leader up front like a good Belanda. We were following the two tracks in the grass made by the vehicles in their journey out. The people were on one track behind the leader and I was on the other beside the leader. We walked for a while when my companion said, brother, walk behind me here. Not knowing what he had in mind, I did as I was told for a while, but then I rejoined him walking on the parallel track. Again, he beckoned me to walk behind. This made me very uncomfortable. I could hear him saying Yolnu Matha, which is their language, walk behind me, but I could not understand the other things he said, which presumably explained the reason for this destruction. Maybe it's because he's the boss and doesn't want anyone else up front with him, I thought. After a kilometer or so, my cultural instincts overtook me and I moved up beside him again. This time he stopped. The whole line of people came to a standstill as he motioned me back behind him. I was starting to feel a bit stupid. What is going on in this guy's head? I asked myself. Just then I found out. We had only gone another 30 meters or so, so that would be about you know, uh, 90 feet, when a large snake came out of the middle of the track and headed for cover, traveling right across the path I had just been walking on. After the group calmed down and they were sure the boppy had gone for cover, we continued on. I was a bit stunned. So that was what he was trying to tell me, I thought soberly. If I had still been on that track, the snake would have wrapped around my legs. He was not only concerned for me, he was just as concerned for himself because I could have disturbed the snake and fried it into his legs. Remember, we're talking about a place where almost all the snakes are deadly. I learned three things that day. That the Yolnu Matha word for snake was Bapi. That I should always trust the people while in their environment and that you all knew as a group of people have knowledge Belanda don't have. And I think that kind of sums up a lot of the culture. I have a lot of respect for the culture. I mean, 40,000 years of their knowledge base is just massive. So that is a little overview of the Aboriginal people of, of Australia. Uh, I, if you know anyone has any questions or anything, I'm happy to, to work with you. Okay, so let's get into Melaleuca Kajapudi. So it's from the family uh, Myrtaceae, uh, which is myrtles. You know, myrtles are myrtle trees. That's the family. So as we talked about in earlier uh, Sperb Serbs, uh, uh, Myrtaceae, or myrtles is the family. Melaleuca would be the genus, and Kajapudi would be the species. The medicinal part of the Melaleuca Kajapudi is leaves. Other names for this, as we already talked about, is, is paper bark. And then there's a bunch of, of uh, Aboriginal names, Rangan, Mamara, Jakara, Badar, Nambara, Thayil. 
By the way, I have no idea how to pronounce these from an Australia from an Aboriginal point of view, so please forgive my pronunciations. Um, Kajaput is spelled with uh, a U in the middle, an E in the middle, an A in the middle. Uh, so there's lots of different uh, spellings of that. White Samet, Delic Air, Jellum or Gellum, Nippus Kalit, uh, Pocock, uh, Kajaput Bomb and swamp tea tree now this this last one's an interesting swamp tea tree so i think you know tea tree oil has become really popular in the last few years and is is a um, really uh, useful medicinal substance for a lot of things and this is related to that now technically tea tree is a different species of melaleuca than kajaputi though i did find one article that said that different species of melaleuca actually are used as tea tree oil in different parts of the world where they're grown and where they're um, processed. And, and uh, Melu Kajaputi is actually one of those that can be considered tea tree oil in certain parts of the world. Um, but technically, it's a different species than, than Kajaputi. It was first described in the West in 1809 by Thomas Powell, in, pharma, in the Pharmacopoeia of the Royal College of Physicians of London. So that is the first description in, in the West. Uh, Melaleuca kajaputi is a tree found in the Northern Territories, Queensland, uh, and Western Australia. And, uh, and those are all in Australia, so Northern Territories and Queensland. Uh, Queensland is just uh, uh, east and south of the Northern Territories. And Western Australia, of course, is in West. And then Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea uh, Indonesia, Malaysia are all north. We have Thailand, Singapore, and Vietnam uh, will actually have uh, this uh, Melaleuca kajaputi. And generally in coastal plains or seasonal swamps, so it, it actually needs lots of water. Several of these locations have been planted actually, so that it is actually grown and cultivated, uh, especially in Java and Malaysia. There's some interesting uses of, of some of this that we're going There are many species of Melaleuca found throughout Australia, and generally they have similar uses. So even if it's not Melaleuca kajaputi, there's a lot of other species, and they're very similar. So as we, we go through this, um, you know, my book had four or five different species, and they all had pretty much the same uses. So what we talk about here is probably applicable to other, oh, many other species of Melaleuca. Vlasica McCarthy uh, wrote a book in 1990 state that there are many synonymous species to Kajaputi, including Saligna, Minor, Chinervis, Lancifolia, Leucodendron, and others. Another source says Melaleuca quinquinervia is also a synonym. Um, so I, I want to take a little exception to this. And this is, uh, last week, McCarthy wrote this in 1990. Um, their book actually was a little bit more emphasis on the herbal uses of these things and, and were, didn't appear to me to be quite as scientific as some of my other sources. Um, the reason why I say this is they say these are synonymous species. Other sources say they are not. Um, this leucodendron, uh, one source said, is actually sort of the community of Melaleuca in this realm of things and includes a lot of other species rather than uh, you know, a specific spe species of itself. I guess my point is the source texts kind of say these, I mean, one says these are synonymous species, others don't. 
Um, I think that it kind of goes back to my, my first bullet point here is even if they're slightly different species, they generally have similar uses and therefore can be considered synonymous, at least for herbal usage and, and all that, even if they are completely different species. So the indications for when we would use this in Aboriginal medicine is used to treat congestion and pain associated with respiratory infections. So that's really what it is. Um, it's also used to treat pain, burns, and dyspepsia, you know, upset stomachs, in addition to colds and influenza and other parts of the world and, and other Aboriginal cultures, you know, other than the Northern Territory. So it has lots of wide things. Now, I should, you know, just a brief mention here, you know, one of my, my side projects I always wanted to do while going through medical school was to learn about Aboriginal herbology. You know, I had studied Chinese herbs and very interested in herbology and I'm going over there for four years why not learn about Aboriginal herbology and I ran into several barriers um, some of them I think were just you know mistrust of a Belanda um, and there was some cultural stuff there again I, I told you culturally you don't ask questions uh, you know we were trained in, in um, medicine uh, like in the emergency room we were told not to ask the question of why are you here we were, we were asked, we were told what we were supposed to do was kind of shuffle around, eyes down, you don't look them in the eyes, eyes down on the floor and talk about the weather or, the, or uh, something else benign and then they will tell you why they're actually in the emergency room. You're not supposed to go up and ask them why they're, they're in the emergency room. Now in, in, in actual workings, most of us did ask them why they were in the emergency room but traditionally, culturally, you're not supposed to. So when I'd ask about um, Aboriginal herbology, I didn't get much in the way of, of um, information from a lot of sources. But there was one day, it was interesting, and uh, it was a few of us medical students that were there, and we went out scavenging for what's known as bush tucker or bush food um, with a couple of, of uh, and this is, sort of the translation of what they say old old women or old grandmothers um, and so we were out and we were uh, digging around roots we found a, a root grub um, my, one of my, my uh, fellow students found a root grub uh, and he ate it uh, which is supposed to be great food and it's also medicine and that was sort of what I got from this sort of expedition out with these these grandmas is there wasn't a lot of distinction between food and medicine it was like like for example, the root grub, if you ate it raw, it was food. And if you cooked it, it was medicine. Um, well, what would you use that for? It was like, well, you use it when you need to use it is sort of the answer I got. So it wasn't like there was distinct and quantifiable and qualifiable you know, herbs that I could see. It was just like, okay, this food can also be used as an herb if it's prepared that way. Or this herb is a food in these circumstances. And um, you eat more of this when you're this way, or you eat more of that when you're that way. So it was difficult, as far as I could tell, to actually kind of get a really clear definition of what herbs were doing for what. And, you know, I ended up buying a lot of books on this topic. Uh, and uh, the books tend to be all written by, by Belanda. And so I don't think they really get at why the Aborigines use a particular herbal medicine or not. There's a lot of superficiality to it I feel like um, but still fascinating and I'm still trying to learn so 
in preparing Melaleuca Kajapudi, the Aborigines have three major preparations. The first is inhalation. And I love this one. It's, it's achieved by crushing a few young leaves by hand and the vapor is inhaled to help nasal and bronchial congestion. So um, just to kind of give an idea, if you've ever smelled tea tree oil, it kind of has that eucalypti sort of smell to it. And this is, I think, uh, I think in the myrtle family are the eucalyptus, eucalyptus trees. And so it has that sort of um, really kind of powerful aromatic smell to it. So you can see just, you know, like crushing this and then sniffing it and inhaling the vapors could actually help open up the, the nasal cavities and bronchial congestion. So that's the first preparation is inhalation. The second is a wash and it's created by crushing a large handful of leaves and boiling them in water. The liquid and leaves are rubbed into the chest or aching joints. So if it's into the chest, of course, if it's a chest cold, aching joints if it's more for pain. A small amount of the liquid can be sipped. And, and I actually saw this uh, in getting into the toxicity of stuff is um, it's actually low toxicity. We'll talk about that in just a few, um, but uh, you don't want to drink a lot of, of it, basically. The steam produced during boiling can be inhaled, and that makes a lot of sense. That would be almost like doing an essential oil in a, in a um, vapor machine. Uh, these method, in a, in a steaming machine, sorry. Uh, these methods are used as a rubefacient. If you're not, I, I wasn't familiar with this word. I had to look it up. And what a rubefacient is, is something that reduces redness uh, topically. So you put it on and it would actually distribute, it would actually um, change the redness and, and help it to go away. So it's a topical use of this. It's used as a decongestant uh, to help breathing and an expectorant. So it actually brings up phlegm and helps you to to cough that out, to treat bronchitis, sinusitis, and colds. We see that a lot um, in, in when we're talking about this is uh, flus, colds, bronchitis, sinusitis, all that stuff. And the third preparation is after you do this wash, you can also apply it as eardrops to treat an earache. So you take the liquid and you put them, you apply them directly to the ear and that can help an earache as well. So you can see from all of these sort of things, from a, at least from a scientific point of view, there's there's got to be some antibacterial and probably some antiviral properties to this as well. And when, when we look at the science, we'll see that that's the case. So uh, in other parts of the world, it's used internally for stomach cramps, colic, and asthma. That makes sense. As an ointment or liniment externally for neuralgia or nerve pain and rheumatism. So that's the stiff joints and, and low back pain. Also for toothaches and earaches, and potentially for treating tumors. It's, it's considered to be anti-tumor medication as well. The oil can be used as an insect repellent for treating worms, uh, especially they said roundworms are really good for that. And even infections of the genital urinary system. Um, I would imagine, I just, I, I don't know a ton about all this stuff, but I would just imagine you wanna make sure that you got the dilution just right before applying it anywhere near the genitals or, or anything along those lines. I would think it could be a little bit harsh in some of those areas. Uh, it's also used as a flavoring in cooking and a fragrance in soaps, cosmetics, detergents, and perfumes. We're not getting into it too much, but <clears throat> there's actually a, a lot of economic uses for this plant. 
Uh, and since this is herbs, it's not it's not about the economics of it. We don't get too much into it. But the, it is cultivated in certain parts of the world. It is used uh, here, as you can see, in a lot of stuff other than herbally. Uh, though you can make a, a, a you know a point that in all of these the soaps, cosmetics, and churches, the perfumes, there might be an herbal application to it, like an insect repellent or or uh, helping uh, you know redness or anything along those lines so that you can see some of the herbal aspects of this it is used you know the 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 wood and some of the other parts are used for buildings but that's relatively it's, it doesn't seem to be really strongly used for anything in, in uh, that uh, circumstances so it isn't generally used for its wood um, and, and my understanding is it, it grows in like poles so it's not it's not like something you would um, make into planks or anything like that it's my just briefly looking at it it's used as poles to hold up corners and things along those lines so it's not huge in that aspect of things um, what was surprising me is I just to check on Amazon and see if I can get anything with Melaleuca Kajaputi and uh, yeah I can there are actually many sources that had it as an essential oil and when you look at those, it says it's used to treat cuts, scrapes, bug bites, and as an antiseptic. It also uh, was found in various lotions, detergents, and other products, including toothpaste. So uh, what I just said about preparation in certain parts of the world, we can certainly get those things here in, in the U.S. I looked at the U.S. Amazon. So, yep, you can find Melaleuca Kajaputi or Kajaput toothpaste if you want to give this a, a go for that. So thought that was kind of fascinating what I didn't find uh, was like being able to find the leaves in my, my because my guess is because the aromatic oils and as we know aromatics um, don't tend to dry well necessarily and uh, the aromatic oils and so it's it's usually processed as an essential oil and I did not see any dried leaves I didn't see any way to actually get a raw herb out of this. I only saw really the essential oils and these various products uh, easily available. So uh, that was interesting to me because most herbs we can just buy some form of it and use it how we wish, but not in this case. I didn't see anything like, like um, you know, uh, tablets or capsules or anything to take this internally either. So, so let's talk about its Chinese medical actions. There does not appear to be any direct translation of Kajapa to Chinese medicine. I couldn't find anything in, in any of the Materia Medica, um, nor could I find anything in uh, several different authors' uh, attempts to translate herbs into Chinese medical actions. The only thing I did see, the closest was translating the essential oil into Chinese medicine. And there was one company, Snow Lotus, um, that describes it as having the function of tonifying qi, raising yang qi, and warming the interior and strengthening the spirit. So that was one uh, attempt, but it was just the essential oil. That was just the essential oil. So we're kind of left to our own devices as to what this does. And I've given my best guess as to what this is from a Chinese medical point of view. From its traditional uses, we get some idea of how it works in Chinese medicine. Since it works on colds and respiratory infections, it probably releases the exterior and is accurate and definitely aromatic. Every description talks about it being aromatic. So, accurate and aromatic. Since it is a rubefacient, 
reducing skin redness. We can assume it is cooling in nature from a Chinese point of view, so it's cooling. Since it relieves pain and congestion, it's probably damp, damp draining and chi and possibly blood moving. I'm gonna probably go a little bit more on the chi moving here. So that leaves a few questions for us to ask about it. Since it treats respiratory conditions, does it tonify lung chi or is it just exterior relief? Uh, my, my, my answer to that is it, it probably doesn't because it's only used as far as I can tell when someone's in the throes of, of congestion and, and uh, flu. So I, I would think it tends towards just exterior relieving. Since it is a decongestion and expectorant, does it transform phlegm? And given its aromatic nature, this is probably likely. Since it appears to be antibacterial, antiviral, does it clear toxic heat? Uh, and that is a good question, which I don't really have a great answer for. Uh, so the probable summary, this is what I'm putting forward as um, its Chinese medical properties are it's acrid or spicy, spicy acrid, aromatic, cool, uh, enters the lung, and I put question mark the liver due to its chi moving aspects. It's a question mark. It drains and transforms damp phlegm heat, regulates chi, and releases the exterior. So that's my summary of the Chinese medical actions of Maluka Kajaput. Um, definitely open for discussion, argument, disagreement, all that sort of stuff. I would love to, to have someone else's opinion on where all this comes from and what it can do according to Chinese medicine. So some comparisons. The, the, the real comparison here is the tea tree oil that we talked about earlier. Similar to tea, tea tree oil, which is probably stronger in its antimicrobial properties. Um, I know I have, my, my mom loved tea tree oil on her joints. It was one of the few things that could actually help her joints. Um, so she always got um, creams with and liniments. Uh, she wouldn't take my Chinese stuff. Um, she loved the tea tree oil. My stuff, I think, smelled too much for her. To The Chinese stuff, I think, was just too strong for her. Uh, so that's probably the closest. And as we said, it's actually, it's another species of Melaleuca. So it's, it's pretty similar to it. I think it's more popular and more easy to more easily attainable. Uh, though tea tree products aren't that cheap, especially if they have a decent amount of tea tree oil in them. And as I mentioned earlier, some of the synonymous melucas that we talked about earlier are actually used in the production of tea tree oil. So it's possible that depending on where it's grown and processed, some tea tree oils are actually kajaput. So um, very similar, though the, the, the real tea tree oil is probably a little stronger in its antimicrobial properties. And I don't think it's used that much for the respiratory issues that we have necessarily. So, so that's a big comparison for Melaleuca. So the science, um, so one of the issues that I had with the science is there wasn't a lot of research that I found on it. Uh, I, I found a lot of Indian research, which was interesting and um, and, and some research in those countries that we talked about, like Indonesia, Malaysia. Malaysia seemed to have quite a bit of research on it, but it was more about uh, its constituents and uh, things along those lines. Not a lot about how effective it is or what it actually is used for. There just wasn't a ton of science around that. It did appear that this plant had strong antioxidant and antibacterial activity. That, 
that seems to be pretty consistent with the science that I actually saw. Uh, none of that is particularly in vivo in, in um, human beings. It was more like the chemicals that we extract from this are showing to have these strong activities, um, not that they were tested in humans. So it was in vitro rather than in vivo. But I still think that's consistent with the uh, Aboriginal usage of, of this of this herb. So it, I, I feel pretty confident that we can say that Maluka kajaputi is a strong antioxidant and a, and a, and a, a strong antibacteria, back, uh, antibiotic. It has been tested for anti-acne, I thought was interesting, and anti-tumor activity. I, you know, the studies that I showed that, uh, that I saw that did that, I, it says though the results were not substantial. I don't mean that they weren't positive. I just mean that they were small studies. And so it's hard to conclude there was only one study that I saw in each of these and there were small studies. So it's hard to say that it actually does have anti-acne or anti-tumor activity, but it's certainly there are pointers to that. So it's not something necessarily to dismiss but uh, definitely to take with a grain of salt. It's probably the anti-acne is probably one of the reasons why it's, it's uh, in cream, one of the uses of the creams as well as, as anti-acne. As I mentioned, a lot more uh, research needs to be done. Um, one of the things that was also interesting about the science was there was quite a bit of science around the essential oils. Uh, and that definitely seems to be where we're at with a lot of the herbal activities of Melucca uh, outside of the Aboriginal culture uh, is in the essential oils. Uh, I think it's easy to make and, and easy to distribute and therefore it's easy to, to uh, use in other sources, other places rather than its source. So um, there was a lot of research in the essential oils but it all kind of came down to antioxidant and antibacterial for the most part. Uh, there needs to be a lot more research done, not just on the essential oils, but also on the leaves and its herbal activities, its, its beneficial activities as well. Um, what I, I did like, there was uh, one team uh, led by Noor that uh, said there were some compounds in essential oil that may help depression and anxiety, which I thought was interesting. Um, I'm a little concerned about this information. Uh, and, and the reason why is uh, it wasn't clear if they needed to be taken internally. And just because there are compounds that are recognized as antidepressives and anti-anxiety does not mean <coughs> that when ingested, those compounds will um, be absorbed and have those actual activities. Um, it's, again, it's an interesting pointer, but I don't think it's substantial in any way, shape or form. I wouldn't start going to my um, patients who have depression, anxiety, and say, okay, let's use this essential oil. Now, what I might do is say, hey, do you use essential oils? Why don't you try some Melaleuca Kajaputi essential oil and see if that helps anything? I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to that, but I certainly wouldn't be adding it into an herbal prescription or anything along those lines at this point. And I wouldn't go far in doing this. So, but I still think it's fascinating that it, it has some of that. And it actually goes to um, what uh, Snow Lotus said about their essential oil, that it actually um, helps the spirit, uh, benefits the spirit. So that would certainly be in Chinese medicine in this realm of health, depression, and anxiety. So uh, the contents uh, are interesting. One of the things, you know, I say right off the bat, the dominant component 
in the essential oil is uh, 1,8-cineole, or cineole, cineole, cineole. Um, you know, right away, you know, one of the, the, the one of the big books that I've used uh, in, in doing and working on this, uh, they had three different samples. And in uh, two samples, this was by far the biggest component of the, the leaves, um, not just the essential oil, but the leaves. And then the third sample, it was relatively minor. So um, the reason why I'm saying this is even though this appears to be in a lot of the literature that I've looked at, um, the dominant component, 1,8-cineol, um, and again, I, this is an essential oil. It's, it's in the, um, you know, it's, it's concentrated in essential oils. There's a lot of essential oils in Melaleuca uh, kajaputi, but, and we can, we can point at them and say, this is an essential oil, this is an essential oil. What we can't do is say, what is the benefit of this specifically? This hasn't been studied as far as I can tell as to what its actions are. Um, so uh, this is dominant, but we don't know exactly why it is or isn't. But it's also, what I'm trying to get at, and I've kind of broken up as we're going along, is just because it is the dominant overall, there are samples that have very small amounts of this. And that was one of the sort of bottom line of, I saw a lot of studies that talked about the contents of this herb, Melaleuca kajaputi, both the essential oils, uh, the leaves, as well as various other parts of the, of the, of the tree. There was not, it was consistent that this was the dominant component almost all the time, but not every time. There was a lot of inconsistency between samples and, and a lot of variance depending on the, the growing conditions and all that. So that's one of the issues. If I'm looking at this as an herbalist, I'm like, you know, I, I know there's a lot of variability in, in uh, components of herbs depending on when they're grown, how they're grown, where they're grown, all that sort of stuff, uh, the environment. Uh, it seemed to me, and it may just be because I saw a lot more of these studies, because there weren't a lot of other studies to look at, um, that it seemed to be a little bit more with the Melaleuca uh, kajaputi than in, in other herbs that I may or may not be as familiar with, I, I, that I'm more familiar with. So There are a lot of other components in the essential oil, both minor and trace, but um, the 1,8-cineol was the major one. So, um, and, and like I said... Relatively consistency, but not consistently, but not always. There appears to be a good amount of saponins. Uh, saponins are, in general, a component of plant substances, and they can have various uh, properties to them. Um, the, the problem is, I didn't see a list of specific saponins that were in Melaleuca uh, kajaputi, and I, I tried looking for them. All I saw was some, some, uh, some lab results that said there were sap quite a few saponins. It was a triple plus of saponins uh, on this lab test, but it didn't get into anything. It was sort of a, a, a broad test to see if they were present, but it didn't actually get into specifics about which ones were present or what they were actually uh, doing. And I couldn't find that. That was of the leaves. And as I went into the essential oils, there weren't as saponins. I don't think saponins are, are, oil, are, um, are oily. I'm not sure about that, but I don't think they are. So I didn't see anything that I could recognize as a saponin in the essential oil. So um, I, I want to know more about these saponins, but I just couldn't find a lot of information about them. 
The other thing that was interesting, large amounts of calcium are in the leaves. Uh, quite a bit uh, of calcium is in the leaves. So um, that probably has no bearing whatsoever on anything, any of the herbal properties, but I, I found it fascinating. There was very little iron in them. Uh, and there was a little bit of uh, a couple other trace elements, but calcium was by far uh, uh, the largest amount that was there. So that's the contents of Melaleuca kajapudi. Uh, as uh, listeners know, I always look at drug over interactions. That's, uh, you know, my, my book was a lot of drug over interactions. And uh, I gotta say, this is one of the few times I have not seen anything on drug herb interaction. There's no obvious research looking at potential drug herb interactions in a, a Google Scholar search. That's sort of my, my go-to is to go to Google Scholar and look at uh, at least 50 results uh, of, the, of the search. And uh, in this case, it was Meluka, Kajapudi, drug herb interactions. Actually, I think I just did interactions, not drug herb interactions. I did both. I did drug herb interactions and interactions and didn't get anything on any potential drug or interaction so there's nothing there and and that doesn't in my mind that doesn't speak to the safety of mellow kajaputi in regards to drug or interactions it speaks to the lack of uh, investigation on this so i, I don't want this to be interpreted saying there are no drug or interactions with meluka kajaputi i think uh the takeaway is that there's been very little research in this regard and there needs to be more research to determine if there's any drug or interactions with Meluka Kajapudi. So what are some concerns? Well, unfortunately, we're still in the same bag. There's not a ton of research on this, nor in 2020. So this is, uh, you know, I'm recording this in 2020. So this is brand new, showed low toxicity of the essential oil. Though it, you know, again, we, we hear again, again, don't, you, you can, you know, maybe have a little bit of it, but don't take too much of this internally. Um, but they were saying, and, it, and, and I gotta say, you know, it was a relatively positive uh, paper. It was in the scientific literature, not super well established, but a relatively positive uh, paper on Meluka Kajapudi. So I take this with a bit of a grain of salt, but they showed low toxicity of the essential oil. Um, I think the fact that it is used in many, many parts of the world, and, uh, and including the United States, I think uh, there, there have not been any, there wasn't in the literature any reports of, of, of negative uh, reactions or, or any toxic reactions. So um, at least from the literature, uh, you know, Nor says there's low toxicity of the essential oil. I think that's probably substantiated by the, the dearth, the lack of, of any uh, scientific information regarding the toxicity of it. Usually if something's toxic, you'll see a case report of someone having a problem. There's nothing like that in Melaleuca kajapudi that I can see. Uh, and, and as I've said, there was little other research into the safety and toxicity of kajaput. I think there's a lot that needs to happen on this. I did see other papers um, that did look a little bit at this when they were looking at antimicrobial and antibacterial properties. Um, and they kind of came to similar conclusions that it's, it's fairly low toxicity, but none of those papers, in my opinion, were super strong, were, were you know, published in, in good journals and, and uh, weren't anything but sort of like a local interest scientific paper sort of thing. So um, I, I'm just gonna leave it at, there needs to be a lot more research into the safety and toxicity of Kajaput, though at this point it appears to be relatively low toxicity and relatively safe.
So that is Melaleuca Kajapudi uh, in a nutshell. It's, you know, there's, there's a lot going on with this herb. And uh, it's my, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's the first Aboriginal herb that we, we looked at uh, through Suburbs Herbs. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting. I think it sums up its use, traditional use, by the Aborigines is, is very Aboriginal. In other words, um, it's something I think that you use when you pick it. You know, you pick it and it's small leaves, you crush them and inhale them. Big leaves, you're gonna boil them up, smell the steam, clear the sinuses, um, and then maybe drink a little bit of it or rub it on, on parts that are painful. But it's all used in the moment rather than carried with them and, and used and stored in some fashion. Um, that's something with the, the Aboriginal culture that, you know, living there, you, you really realize is that um, there is no refrigeration traditionally, you know, now there is, but there wasn't traditionally and their, and their, and their customs and their culture is about taking in the abundance that's around you while you have it because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. So um, they don't waste anything, just, you know, like Native Americans would waste um, things or anybody, any hunters really. Um, they don't waste any of the substances that they get or any of the gifts they get from the land. Uh, they, they really use everything to the nth degree. Um, but they use it in the moment. They don't use it in... Um, in uh, they don't store things in general. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a negative thing, but this is, again, sort of the Balanda coming in and trying to help the Aborigines. One of the, the things that I think explains this a lot and uh, was an issue uh, living in Aboriginal communities is they were on the dole. That was, that's the Aboriginal, I mean, that's the Australian term for like welfare. So they're on the dole. And so they would get checks every two weeks. And um, what most of them would do, many of them would do in the, I, I don't want to paint too fine of a, a, you know, big of a brush. And, you know, of course we have to be careful of, of cultural biases and all this when we're talking about this, this stuff. But they would take the check and just gorge them. So they use all the money and they gorge themselves over the next few days. They, you know, um, alcoholism was a big issue and they would, you know, they would often big benders um, after they got the check and then they wouldn't have any check and then they would have to figure out how to eat for the next you know uh, for you know 10 days until the next check came in and that was just I think that's cultural and again I think it's it's sort of um, the West trying to put their values on them and uh, not understanding where their values are and, and meeting them and of course there's in modern day there's a lot more discussion happening between the Aboriginal leaders and, and the white people, and hopefully some of this stuff is, is getting worked on. Um, but I will say, having lived there, I probably saw um, more racism um, from, a, you know, targeted at Aborigines than I've ever seen in my life before. Um, so, it, you know, there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be happening. And I, um, like I said, I have a lot of respect and uh, just the, the knowledge base and the what they they can do and what they know is just amazing to me. So I'm I'm really fascinated with the the Aborigine, Aboriginal uh, people. So um, that was all to kind of explain that they they tend to live now 
rather than um, worrying about the future too much. You know, if you kill an animal, you got to eat it right away. There's no refrigeration. I guess there's, and there was, I think, some preparations that could extend that out a bit, but there wasn't a ton of that in the Aboriginal desert. So, uh, you know, it was it very much we need it now. And this, the use of this herb follows that. It's like when we need this herb, it'll be there for us, and we'll use this herb. You know, rather than put it. And I guess in, a, in a, a Western sense, kind of in a medicine pouch or something, I guess. So, anyways, so that's Melaleuca kajapudi, also known as paper bark, and uh, commonly known as paper bark. I think it was a really interesting uh, herb and it allowed us to get into a little bit of the Aboriginal culture, just a touch. Our next episode that we're going to be talking about on Superb Herbs is actually going to be looking at the nourish the yin category of herbs the entire category of nourish the yin so a very important category of herbs especially for women's issues the nourish the yin herbs are used extensively in chinese formulas please join us as we explore these useful herbs and compare them to each other so it should be another fascinating episode of spurbs herbs thank you very much for those uh, listening to the podcast if you want to help us out uh, when you buy from Amazon, please use the banner ad on our homepage at spurbserbs.com. You get a few pennies. Uh, you can always get in touch with me, Dr. Greg Sperber, at drgreg at spurbserbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com. Or our website, www.spurbserbs.com. Thank you very much. We have our bibliography, as usual. I try to have a lot of different sources. Bibliography. Uh, this was actually, I've got to be honest with you, just as a little aside, this is a little bit smaller bibliography than I'm used to just because there's a lot, of, there wasn't a ton of research on this. So uh, usually there's a much larger bibliography because I find more research papers to include in this. But having said all of that, I think we are done. Spurs. Spurs. The proceeding was Spurs. presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins. Rogers. Campbell. 